this week on Forward. Calling people conspiracy theories is not helpful. I agree. These are, these are kind, intelligent, uh, wonderful people. And if we say it's them uh, versus us, it doesn't help us understand what's going on. Uh, and and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't discount those people and we shouldn't discount their theories. Part of the story of these misbeliefs is that it's about the belief in the outside world in something that is ain't so, but it's also taking that as a central theme in somebody's life and using that to look at the world as their perspective. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast psychologist and behavioral economics professor from Duke University, best-selling author of Predictably Irrational and his latest book, which we're going to discuss, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things. Dan Ariely. Welcome, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. I, I read Predictably Irrational before I quote-unquote knew who you were. <laughs> There's obviously the TED Talks. Uh, you're one of the foremost thinkers on why people behave quote-unquote irrationally. Um, but uh, this book, I think, got very personal, and it's something that I was fascinated by because I've uh, been through <laughs> at least my own versions of it. Um, so you stumbled upon some misinformation about yourself, uh, including from people that actually knew you or like, hey, Dan, I uh, didn't know that you were uh, doing such nefarious things. <laughs> and then you were like, yeah. what nefarious things? And then you started digging into it and it led you down a deep rabbit hole uh, that did result in this book. Yeah. First of all, it was terribly painful, but you're very right to to point out that the, the accusations for the people who knew me was extra tough. It was um, something about it was extra tough. And by the way, it doesn't stop. Uh, it started in early COVID days. We are now toward the end of 23. Um, last week, my university got a, a letter that was so threatening that I had to take it to the authorities. And... Um, and about a month ago, there was a new video uh, out there uh, connecting me to the massacre of October 7th. Uh, not true, by the way, if you're, if you're curious. But it's also true that this book um, is very different from my other ones. The, the other books, I had some research that I've done, and I felt it might be useful for people, and I, I wrote it for this purpose. Uh, this one... It was a mystery that hit me like a, like a wall, and I, I had to kind of try and, and find out what was going on. And, and the story was that COVID for me, I felt it was in some way the, the height of my career. It was obviously a problem with the health and a virus, but it was also a social science problem. And I started getting lots and lots of questions about it. All kinds of people wanted to know what to do. Should the police give fines or not fines, big fines or not? How do we get, do distant education, distant learning? What do we do with domestic violence? A number of questions were incredible. And I stopped everything else, and I felt I was just being as useful as, as I could. And then at some point in July, I get an email that says, Dan, what happened to you? 
how have you changed? And very quickly I say, how have I changed? And I get a long list of links. Uh, one of them, for example, uh, describes how I got badly burned. True, M most of my body is covered with scars, including the right side of my face. That's why I don't have hair on this side. Uh, it describes how I spent three years in hospital. And then it went on to say that because of my injury, I started hating healthy people. And that's why I joined the cabal and Bill Gates and the Illuminati to try and kill as many healthy people as possible. And, and I spent about a month trying to argue with these people. Um, I well, think I only I, got... I, I want to I dig into this for a second, Dan, because oh. um, I, I and people I know who had a, had a similar instinct. So the thought is, look, some people are misinformed. And if I could just spend a little bit of time with them, I could let them know, look, you've got it all wrong. And I'm actually a reasonable person. And they would see that they were mistaken. And then they would say, oh, wow, like having spoken to Dan, yes. clearly... Uh, he's not a member of the Illuminati trying to, you know, that's reduce right. human life. So that's the instinct one has. <laughs> that, that's the instinct, right? But, but look, let, let me give you another perspective. Um, uh, how old are you? Uh, 48. Okay. In your 48 years, how many people have you convinced that they were wrong? <laughs> you know more more than some others dad but fewer than i'd like <laughs> okay but but i think i think we we all admit that the number is not very high that that we on one hand what you said is so tempting to say if people only knew the truth they would change their mind on the other hand we have this lifelong experience of almost never managing to convince anybody but but we still have this instinct that if people only knew the truth, and, and I certainly believe that very strongly, and I also have personal information about me. So, you know, people said... Uh, people <laughs> I happen said, to you know, know I'm not a member of the Illuminati. <laughs> but, or, or more specifically, I could say, look, on Wednesday, I was in... Here's my calendar. I was in a different place. I even offered somebody to look at my tax returns to prove to them that... <laughs> anyway... Um, there is a level of craziness where it's about you that is different. Like if you meet somebody and they say, oh, you know, I believe the earth is flat and you say, I don't think so. And you have a go. Okay. But when somebody tells you something about you and you're an expert on you and you have your calendar and you have your emails and you have your bank accounts and you can prove to them and they're still not convinced that's a level of realizing that the world is really, really odd, right? Because I knew people believed all kinds of things I don't believe in. <clears throat> but this, this conflict between I'm an expert on me and I have a lot of data, you know nothing about me and you have lots of beliefs and I'm unable to move you. I tried for a month. I met people face to face. I called people, I joined online discussion groups, I joined Telegram, uh, all kinds of things. I sort of convinced one person, but it was pitiful, pitiful. Uh, <laughs> one, one, one out of how many? Oh, thousands probably. I mean, you know, uh, <clears throat> lots of discussion. This woman, by the way, uh, the one I, I sort of managed to convince, um, she... 
she gave me, she talked to me about all kinds of statistics of people dying from COVID. This was the early days and, you know, quarantine basically reduced death. And not only they reduced death from COVID, they reduced death from other things uh, as well. No car accidents, for example. But anyway, we talked about this and I said, look, I, I am not just thinking about the, the people who are dead. I also think about the people who are sick. And I said, I'm thinking about the people who are on ventilators. And, and she said, why are you thinking? And I said, you know, I, I remember being on one. I remember the, 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 the hopelessness of coming in and out of uh, coma uh, while being ventilated. Very, very tough feeling. And as I was describing it to her, I just started crying. I was, I was thinking about the people who are suffering right now. I was thinking about myself in my early days in, in hospital. And <laughs> I think she, she decided I wasn't as evil uh, uh, this way, but, but she still um, <laughs> didn't fully trust me. Anyway, I, I really failed. And I'm a slow learner, so it took me a month of failing. And then I, I said, I have to understand this. It was like, it was like one of, it's like, a, it, it's an unbelievable puzzle. Well, and it, it's super important today because uh, the, the term conspiracy theorist gets thrown around a lot um, nowadays. But, but, but the fact is that there are a lot of people who, and you point this out in your book, uh, just are losing faith or losing trust in various institutions. And so in a low trust environment, it's easy to be skeptical uh, easier to frankly believe the worst of someone uh, even if it's based on nothing <laughs> so um so so it's one reason why your book is i think very timely and very important is that you break down uh why people believe something that may or may not be right uh and you do it in a non-judgmental way in like a human way where you suggest like look like we're we're actually kind of uh wired um, for some of these things, uh, for example, social proof, like people are susceptible to that, uh, you know, uh, based upon either a correct or incorrect belief, uh, and studies have borne that out. Um, so you break down the reasons why people can be prone to believing something that's not true. And, and you uh, have four categories uh, where you start with the emotional, which I completely agreed with and, and believe in, and you even cite some of the same mindset of scarcity studies uh, that, that affected me uh, with a suggestion that if you stress people out, um, maybe either economically or socially, or in the case of the pandemic, <laughs> via uh, isolation or, uh, you know, real world stress that they become prone to uh, believing certain things. So, so first of all, I, I do want to emphasize this, um, this idea that calling people conspiracy theories is not helpful. I agree. These are these are kind, intelligent, uh, wonderful people. And if we say it's them uh, versus us, it it doesn't help us understand what's going on. Uh, and and we shouldn't we shouldn't discount those people, and we shouldn't discount their theories in the sense that they fulfill a real need. I mean, it's not the the way I would like them to fulfill those needs. But what what happened is that. People do feel stressed. And it's not the stress of, oh my goodness, my calendar is too packed. It's the stress of, I don't understand the world. What is happening here? 
And, you know, we've had a lot of it. We have a lot of it. You know, I, I, I was shocked by how many college undergrads are terrified of chat GPT. You know, they're saying, isn't everything we're studying going to be replaced? What jobs will be there? Uh, the war in Ukraine, you know, what's happening in Iran and the Middle East. You know, th there's lots of things that I, I think are understandably stressful. And, and stress gets our brains to want to find the story. Uh, one, uh, one example I very quickly bring in the book is a question of two tribes of fishermen, one that fishes in the lake and one that fishes in the deep ocean. And you ask the question, which one of them has a less predictable fishing life? Of course, the deep ocean has you know, currents and storms and so on. Which one of them has more superstitions? The ocean. Why? Because when things are not explained, we need a story. It doesn't have to be true, but it needs a story. So when people are stressed, they want a story. But in our case, they want a story about the villain. They want to blame somebody else. And they want a story that would give them superiority. And finding a story with the villain that is complex, give them a sense that they know something that the rest of society doesn't. So, you know, we um, poke fun at people who believe, you know, whatever, and then they say, oh, you're making fun of me. I am the one who really understands what's going on here. It's really this whole thing with the cabal and, and so on, and you just don't understand, right? Because, um, and, and that, by the way, again, it's, it's a perfectly understandable way to, to plug the hole of saying I'm stressed out and I want a story. Yeah. And now, now you have a story, not, not a great story, but, but you, have a, you have a story that helps you temporarily feel better. So the moment you find out that, you know, it's Bill Gates and the Illuminati or whatever, you say, okay, I'm, I'm relaxed. It's not me and I understand the world. But, but that notion of being relaxed only lasts a short time. Because now you start saying, oh my goodness, what else are they doing to us? And then you go online and you find out worse and worse and worse things. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep, lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. 
With Helix, better sleep starts now. You've started to touch on the second uh, set of factors, which is cognitive. Um, there's, so the, first, there's an emotional appeal to having a bad guy, uh, having uh, an insidery body of knowledge that you're privy to. Uh, and then there, there's also a cognitive appeal that's in some ways related. Yeah. And the cognitive appeals, are there are multiple ones. Uh, one of them is, of course, which news are you watching? Are you watching Fox News or NBC? I mean, there's a, there's a choice uh, on which one. The, the second one is our unbelievable ability uh, to, to, bend, to bend facts to our will. You can hear one thing and completely discount it because it doesn't fit with your idea. You can hear something else that has three points. One is in your favor, two are against, and you discount those and pay attention to that. And then the last component is our overconfidence in our knowledge. And, and there's a couple of mechanisms there, but they, the one I like the most um, is, is called the illusion of explanatory depth. And the way I demonstrated it is I ask people if they understand how a flush toilet works. You know, one of those things. And people said, yes. And I said, great, on a scale from one to seven. They said, I'm great. I said, wonderful. Luckily for you, I have all the pieces of a flush toilet here. Why don't you assemble it? And of course, nobody can assemble it. And then I come back to them and I say, okay, so how much do you understand it? And people say, not so much. Now, if you think about it, usually when we argue with people, we confront them. We, we fight. Here's this information, here's this information, you're not hearing me, there's another paper on this, and there's another fact on this, and what do you do with this? And, and we know that people don't really listen. They start counter-arguing even before we finish the sentence, right? And, and we do the same. We don't listen to them, and we start counter-arguing before they finish it. We, we are basically in a very defensive mode. And as a consequence, sometimes we finish arguments, and even though we were exposed to new information, we're even more sure about our original opinion because we kept on rehearsing and, and thinking of supporting evidence. The, the approach based on the illusion of explanatory depth is to say, don't fight somebody, come at it from their perspective. So, for example, think about the elections in the US. Uh, lots of people think that the elections were stolen. And you can try and argue with them. Stolen, not stolen, here's evidence here and there. Or you could say, okay, let's not argue whether it was stolen. Help me understand how exactly it was stolen. And how do elections actually work? Uh, how do the votes get counted? And if somebody wanted to steal the election, what could they do? Like, how, how would it actually work? Like, let's get into the details. And it turns out that when people get to the details, like the flush toilet, they say, okay, you know, I'm not so sure. And, and part of the story of these misbeliefs is that it's about the belief in the outside world in something that is ain't so, but it's also taking that as a central theme in somebody's life and using that to look at the world as their perspective, right? So, so the moment we reduce people from 100% certainty to 95 
we already are in a different world because now they can't take it as a central tenant in their, in their perspective and they start looking at the world in a maybe. And, and that's, a, that's a huge step forward. So, so on the cognitive side, you know, there are ways to fight all of the, all of the uh, cognitive parts, but, but this one is the, is the most interesting one and, and one that we can actually uh, start practicing. <laughs> the toilet is a good example. I don't think I could put the toilet together. Um, and <laughs> I, and I, I might have, though, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have given myself a seven before the fact, though, because I'd be like, I don't know. Um, so that, By the way, it works on lots of things. You can ask people, do they understand how viruses work and locks and zippers and so on? <laughs> and it, 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 it works on lots of things. But, you know, in the, um, the modern workplace, uh, currently, the way I see it, uh, people are saying, don't have any discussions about touchy topics. Uh, but that's actually not that good. Because, you know, we, we, where would we talk about touchy topics? Where would we get exposed to opinions that are of people that we respect? You know, if... if yeah, that uh, you kind of are forced to, to um, be collegial to because you know, they're literally your colleagues. Um, so there's a quote from your book that speaks to um, the, this approach. The first thing to understand is that the real issue is not the facts, allegations, and stories. The real issue is emotional simply acknowledging where they're coming from and empathizing with their pain without trying to correct them goes a long way. Yeah. A woman actually wrote me today about that, that quote. And uh, she said that she was deeply offended by some of her friend's statement on, on X, on Twitter. And she called her friend and she realized that her friend was as upset uh, with her about that. And um, she basically said, let's not talk about the statements we made first. Let's just remind each other that we're friends, that we care about each other. Uh, you know, that let's, let's, let's work from a, a perspective of initial trust and compassion to the other person's perspective. And, and, you know, they still don't agree, but it's a very different kind of disagreement. And they each see why the way they phrase things were offensive. But it's... Um, yeah, this idea of being on the on the defense and and arguing about moral grounds it's a it's 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 incredible and it's very unhelpful because it's often a discussion about something that happened in the past uh, it's uh, holding us from moving forward you know the question of who was more wrong uh, is is usually not uh, not a helpful way to move forward. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say 
That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Yeah, you know, if, if you respect someone's humanity first and foremost, and then the, their point of view on a particular issue can become secondary pretty quickly. Because, like, yeah. I mean, who's going to agree on everything? Is has always been my <laughs> my my, my uh, um, attitude. And then I focused on what what actually can be done. So the 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 third set of elements that I, I thought was really interesting was uh, personality, and that there are some personality types that might be a little bit more susceptible or prone or likely to believe something that might not be borne out. Uh, and you mentioned superstition earlier. Um, one of the personality elements is, is seeing patterns in things that may not actually have patterns. So, so the, the one important caveat to say about personality is that it does lubricate the path toward misbelief, but it's not deterministic, right? If we say uh, stress is the breeding ground for misbeliefs, without stress, you wouldn't get it. If people are just happy as clams, like no misbelief. So when you need stress. Personality is not like stress. It's not like if you have it, you get it, and if you don't, you don't. But there are some personality types that do make it easier to go down that, that path. And they're not all bad traits. For example, paternity is the ability to see patterns, uh, even ones that don't exist there and don't exist. And you can say, oh my goodness, this could be really amazing for artists to observe new things. And this could be amazing for scientists to create new hypotheses and see things that other people have not observed before. All of that is true. It also has a potential downside is that people are able to see connection between, you know, me and Gates and and so on. Uh, so, so for just just as an example, um, the Gates Foundation funded an event a few months before COVID to do a simulation of uh, pandemic, which which Gates has been warning about for years. That's right, and they use COVID as the example. Now. They funded lots of simulations of lots of other things and lots of time. But, but if you say, here's just two points that I'm looking at and I'm ignoring everything else, you say, oh my goodness, how could it be that October, they knew that this will happen in January. And now, now you, you look at other things that support this view and, and you build it. So that's one of them. Another one that is interesting is that people who trust their intuition to a higher degree are more likely to go down the the funnel of misbelief. So people who have an inclination, I know what's really happening here, and I'm always right, so I trust myself. 
the people who question themselves are less likely to go down this, this path. And actually, you know, one of the things that I think that we don't teach enough is this ability to hold multiple hypotheses in mind. You know, the, the scientific pursuit is supposed to be the enjoying the path of moving from not knowing to, to knowing. And it's a path to take years, right? Here's an experiment I want to do. It's never that I'll have an answer tomorrow. It will take a really long time and it's, a, it's like an onion and it will peel different levels and we'll find out something and, and so on. And in the scientific um, process, we, we teach our students to enjoy, marinate in the process of not knowing and enjoy the, the, the slow figuring out of what might actually happening. Now, as human beings, uh, we're very driven to not keep uncertainty uh, alive all the time. We want to know. We want to know. So, but I think we, we all need to get a better dose of this, not just tolerating ambiguity, but learning to enjoy it. That's kind of the high level. Maybe, maybe that's what the, <laughs> you know, the Buddha would have wanted from us, right? To basically say uh, a, a high level of this is to, is to basically say, I don't know, I want to know, but it will take a long time and we'll never know it 100%, but we'll, we'll practice, we'll get closer and closer. That's, that's a very tough mindset. Hey, hey Dan, um, I should know this, but are you married? Um, I, I'm divorced, actually. <laughs> well, because the the way you were saying this, it reminded me of my marriage where, where it's like, oh, uh, you know, you can't be too confident in what you think you know, because, you know, your wife might say the other thing. And then you're like, well, what did I know? <laughs> like, I, I, I thought we were doing this on Wednesday, but it turns out we are not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know th there's a lot, there's a lot to learn about ourselves from close romantic ties. Right, where um, it's a it's a great analogy to to think about lots of things that we we can learn from from where we are to to what is what is happening. We can um, understand like what are the cues of trust, and we can think about what uh, gives us resilience, and we can talk about how many times are we looking for uh, the truth, and you know what what's happening to to memory. I mean, there's just um, as a, as a lens to look at other relationship, to look first, because, because romantic life is so intense and we spend so much time together and so intense, it's actually a very good starting point to, to think about other relationships. So you say, okay, let me think about work relationships, what works, what doesn't work, you know, start with a very intense relationship at home and, and try to figure out what, what are the basics of relationships. So it's a, it's a good, it's a good starting point. You know, some of the personality research you cite, um, reminded me of, uh, Jonathan Haidt's work, um, uh, in terms of there being certain personality traits that correspond to being conservative or liberal, where if, if you have a high disgust, <laughs> you have a high disgust reflex, you're more likely to be conservative. If you have a higher appetite for novelty, you're more likely to be liberal. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, when, when people attack each other and their political beliefs, there's part of me, it's like, you know, I mean, you, you do realize like most of us can't control our, 
personality traits that way. And so you're kind of born with a propensity. So I feel like you're attacking someone for something that is kind of innate to them. Um, do you have a yeah. sense of the, these traits that make one more open to misbelief, uh, shall we say, um, how prevalent are they, uh, uh, generally speaking? You know, so, so first of all, I, I, I think that all of these traits um, have some kind of basis in biology. I think they have some basis in early education. I don't think it's all uh, what were you born, right? It's, uh, it, it's hard to separate from the environment you grew up with in your early years, like propensity for disgust or novelty. You can imagine how uh, early childhood would have a big influence uh, on, on those things. And I think they have some leeway uh, as well. But if you ask me, like, from the, the 100% pie of all the forces that get people to become uh, misbelievers, what is the role of personality? I would say it's probably around 10 to 15%. So, so substantial, but, but a, a relatively small part of the picture compared to stress, cognitive... And I think that right now, uh, after stress, the biggest component is the social component. I, I, I would agree. I think that especially with social media, that there are massive communities that you're joining. Uh, you get a sense of belonging, uh, a, again, a sense of in-group, out-group. A Very sense much. of importance. I mean, a lot of these folks develop significant followings uh, based upon, uh, you know, their questioning of certain things. Um, so bigger picture right now, and, and this is what scares me deeply, <laughs> is that if you were to oversimplify things, you have this institutional uh, point of view, and then you have the anti-institutional, you're all full of shit, you're lying to me. Uh, that's fake news, <laughs> etc. Um, and the anti-institutional energy is getting stronger and stronger uh, because people, uh, you know, are losing faith in various institutions. And some of the institutions haven't exactly done us a massive solid <laughs> by, you know, covering themselves in glory. That's right. And and think about think about how quickly it is to lose trust. Right. You, one experience of lost trust basically can color your, your point of view. So, so again, imagine that you have uh, two people uh, married and one of them has a one-night stand. And they come home and they say, honey, I'm really sorry I had a one-night stand, but we've been married for 10 years. What's the probability will happen again? You know, very, very low. That, that's not the case, right? The, the case is that one, one bad behavior um, has a disproportional effect, right? And and we basically say that that the bad behavior is revealing something truthful. Like the thing is, you could be really a bad person and trying to hide it. So when you act well, I don't know if I didn't catch you, if you were just hiding it, but a bad action is is more telling in terms of who you really are. So now you feel betrayed. And um, you, you saw the research on the opioid epidemic and the influence on elections? Yeah. 
So with the opioid epidemic, you know, lots of people said, my great aunt had the surgery and she came back and they gave her these pills and then she became an addict. And she had to start taking heroin and she died of overdose. And, you know, they basically say the system has failed us. The system has failed us. Now, that's a very big failing, and I, they, they, they could be correct in, in saying that. But now they say our trust in the government did not go from 100% to 90%, saying, oh, you know, what will happen? What are the chances that I'll have another ant with, with a knee problem that this will happen again? They say, no, I, I've just lost trust completely in the, in the government. So, so one one bad action has a disproportional negative effect, especially if we don't try to recover the trust. So, so yeah, so, you know, and, and if, if somebody adopts the perspective of misbelief and low trust, like the natural course of events will not bring them up. Like, just imagine what would get pumped and say, oh, you know, sorry about all of that. I trust you again. Like, you know, it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a painstaking process. Uh, so the social proof, I think, may be the most compelling, important dynamic that people experience in a way. Because I, I see people head down certain roads all the time. And then when they gain um, popularity and energy, they're like, ooh, like I'm, I'm striking a chord here. And then they want to do more. Uh, and, uh, you know, they get the endorphins, <laughs> and the, the hits, and the likes, um, and, and the rest of it. I think that drives a ton of deeper behavior, um, it almost becomes competitive too, because then it's like, oh, there's this other person over there saying this, like, let's see if I can <laughs> one up them. In the absence of these social rewards, I think it would be much less pronounced. That's right. And also saying extreme opinions, right? If you, if you just stated run-of-the-mill average perspective, how many people would get excited with what you're saying? Uh, you almost have to say things that are on the verge of being ridiculous uh, if you want to make a name for yourself. So, so we have this, not only are people chasing uh, you know, social credit, but the way to get social credit is to say something extreme. The, the silent majority counts for nothing, right? If lots of people look at what you've posted and nod to themselves, you feel zero. <laughs> uh, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no improvement. But what we're really looking for is for those people who would react. And to get somebody to react, you need to do something, something extreme. So it, so it creates uh, extremeness. But, but not only extremeness, um, th there's also the, the issue of support. And, and you mentioned that uh, before, and it's, it's worthwhile saying something about this. So one of the toughest things is being ostracized. Right? Being ostracized is a tough feeling. Uh, the world hates me, or people hate me, and it affects people's well-being, and it affects people's uh, hopefulness for the future, and it affects their willingness to donate money, and it, it just has a big effect on, on any kind of pro-social behavior. Yeah, you, know, you did a study or you they did a brain uh, wiring study and it actually corresponds to a sense of physical injury. So it's like not like, oh, it's in your head, like the, being ostracized actually is physically deleterious. 
Yes, it, it, it uses similar brain mechanisms to physical pain, right? Which is, which is, uh, which is kind of incredible. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, you can, a lot of those things, you can say, oh, evolutionary, I can see why you would want that. Yeah. Because if society can ostracize somebody and it will feel painful, then, then it's a tremendous force to get people to, to act for the, 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 the total good. But, but because of the ostracism, a lot of these people turn to other communities that basically give them the love that they have lost. Yep. And, you know, one, one of the posts against me was a post of somebody who described my crimes against humanity. He decided I was the chief consciousness architect of the pandemic. He predicted there will be Nuremberg trials 2.0, like the same way that uh, they were judging the crimes of uh, Nazi Germany. And he predicted I would be found guilty. And his only question was whether I should get life in prison or public hanging. And, and about a thousand people responded. And the responses were so loving and effusive to him. Like people congratulated him on his writing style and insight and depth and all kinds of things. Lots of little hearts, lots of uh, wonderful emojis. And again, in the same way that we say that we don't want to think that these misbeliefs are for nothing, also we, we don't want to think that this tremendous social support is for nothing. It comes to fulfill a goal. What is the goal? These people feel lonely. They feel ostracized. They feel rejected. And they are the most loving community to each other. It's kind of amazing. You know, they are so, some of those things are so hateful to other people, right? They can, they can talk in one hand about, um, you know, killing somebody. And on the other hand, they're saying that the person who proposed the killing, that person deserves a Nobel Peace Prize for, for what they're doing. <laughs> but, but they're very, very supportive each other and again it's for for a good reason we're, we're, they're lacking this this support and at some point in the book i i recommend to hug <laughs> a conspiracy theorist and you know the, the reality is that um i personally have ostracized people before i did this research one of my favorite sentences to people who started in my view lose touch with reality was to ask what is the color of the sky in your world? And I thought it was funny, but the people who I said it to thought it was offensive. I thought it was a little funny, not very funny, and they thought it was very offensive. And, you know, I think that unintentionally, I ostracize people, right? The, the process that, you know, what we, what we think about should, should happen between people of respect and listening and understanding the causes and the mechanism and so on. Um, it's so hard. It's so hard to take somebody that has these opinions and, and hug them. But, but we need to. You know, the, the, this book had a lot of uh, profundity to it. Um, and it was personal. I mean, reading it, I was like, oh, my gosh, like what a ringer Dan has been through. It's nuts. Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've been through, you know, some uh, like adventures in social media, but nothing uh, compared to, to what um, what you've been through. 
and I dare say that some of these dynamics are uh, leading us to disaster in various ways. Um, um, so you go through this personal journey and then through this research journey, uh, documenting various essentially facets of human nature that lead people to misbelief. Um, so starting with emotional, cognitive, personality, social, it's a very powerful combination if you reflect on it. And I, I dare say that there are tens of millions of people. I mean, this is normal in my mind. This isn't like, oh, you know, and, and I, I, oh, by the way, I totally agree with uh, you on not wanting to ostracize folks. And uh, I try and avoid this label of conspiracy theorist because uh, it's pejorative. And also at this point, you got to say like, you know, some of these conspiracy theories have totally been true. Just because it's a conspiracy that. theory doesn't mean it's false. Yeah, completely. Um, so at the end of this journey that you document in the book, um, you do try and strike notes of optimism. I think one thing you say is, look, guys, uh, trust is really, really important. And if you don't have it, uh, it ends up being corrosive in all sorts of other ways. So, so look, I, I think that humanity, when we discover that we've invented something very bad, it takes us a long time to fix it, and we need some will to start attacking it, think smoking. And we, we have rules about freedom of speech, and we have rules about misinformation, but... But misinformation rules are really about, you know, a pharma company cannot lie in their advertising and people cannot give false testimony in court. But outside of that, we haven't dealt with the problem. Okay? But we didn't need to. You know, the, the funnel of misbelief with all the elements is a, is a weaponized system that we didn't have to deal with because it was not that powerful. Yeah. But but now it's that powerful. You know, we we never have to we never had to worry about like a thousand years ago we didn't worry about biological warfare. Now we really need to worry about biological warfare and there's lots of rules about limiting it because even very few people can create tremendous damage. And look, it's not easy because we all love freedom of speech. All else being equal, it's better to have freedom of speech than not. Uh, we all want companies to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting anybody. But, but in this case, I think we're starting to understand the size of the damage. And imagine we did the following calculation. Imagine that you, we try to calculate what is the loss of trust uh, brought about by social media, what is the cost to society? You know, what is the cost in terms of crime and police and tax payment and medical adherence and you know you you name it and mental and health problems, is, anxiety and depression for sure. I put them on there. Mental health and and also what is the chance that if there will be a next pandemic that people would be willing to to chip in and work together. Uh, what does it do to donations, to charity? I mean, imagine that we, we, we try to, um, to quantify that. I think it will be a very, very large number. You know, this is why the lawsuit against 
Fox, right? They basically said, you know, you hurt our stock price. But I think, I think here there's a real tangible cost to society. You know, it will be fascinating to try and estimate the number, but I think that no matter how you estimate it, it will be very large. Uh, I, I would tend to agree. Call that a negative externality, um, though at this point, this externality is <laughs> kind of central to American life, uh, unfortunately. Well, you do have a number of very very positive lessons in the book, and you, we mentioned some of them in this conversation around uh, around trying to embrace ambiguity, uh, trust uh, a little more, don't judge, don't attack, hug someone who's going through sort of a disengagement. Like, don't don't think that by turning on them, you're going to make anything better, <laughs> which you totally won't. Uh, and, um, you know, these are people that often are friends and family members. We, we all have these people in our lives that five years ago we looked at them and we said, we are the same. And now we look at them and we say, you know, are we the same species? Like they, they feel broken to us. We say, you know, they look at the same information. How could it be that they come with such different conclusions? What's, what's broken inside that the transfer? But, but you know, the, the book really explains what, uh, what has changed. It's not broken. And it's a slow process and it's a difficult process and it's comprehensive. And the deeper people get to it, the deeper it would, the longer it would take to, to get it back. So we can do things as individuals, uh, companies can do things, right? I think companies should encourage respectful discussions with, uh, with different opinions. I think we could do things, help our friends uh, when, when they, we see their needs in our, in our family. And then there are things to do as society. Governments should have uh, plans on how to regain trust. Yeah, amen to that, Dan. I know there's a a lot of rebuilding that needs to be done. In many ways, your book, uh, I think, is an instrument towards empathy, towards greater empathy, where if someone looks at someone uh, with a differing uh, opinion or perspective on something, let's say whether the election was stolen, <laughs> and then, then you look at it and be like, oh, um, but then, you know, like, uh, thanks to your work, it, it, you can see that it's deeply human for people to arrive in different places, even based upon some of the same information. Dan Ariely's new book, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things? Remember, again, that's rational people <laughs> believing <laughs> irrational things. Uh, congratulations on this. How can people keep up with you and your work? Best place is my website, uh, danarielli.com, D-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-Y.com. And I try to post everything there. Fantastic. Please follow Dan. He'll make you smarter. Also a note for someone watching the video. Uh, so uh, Dan used to shave. And then um, when he didn't shave, he found a lot of empathy with folks who had experienced injury. Uh, He got many notes commending him and he said, you know what, this is actually uh, who I am and uh, let's uh, be honest with the world and has found a a lot of um, kinship and fellowship uh, through that gesture. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for mentioning it. 